The Voluntarist Handbook, a collection of essays, excerpts, and quotes by Keith Knight. 11. Homelessness, Regulation, and Minimum Wage. There exists a clear bridge between what is ideologically sound, and what works in the real world. Homelessness, regulation, and exploitation are three areas where government believers most often say, to hell with the logic of voluntarism. These things are important. Voluntarists agree that these are important issues, which is why leaving them in the hands of the government, a coercively funded monopoly, is the worst approach to solving them. The following is a collection of quotes which will help to explain why those who desire regulation out of their concerns for homelessness and exploitation, should instead embrace voluntarism. The very same people who say that government has no right to interfere with one's sexual activity between consenting adults believe that the government has every right to interfere with economic activity between consenting adults. Thomas Sowell, Ph.D., looking for that elusive escalator to success. Sun Sentinel, Jan. 2000. Any statute or administrative regulation necessarily makes actions illegal that are not overt initiations of crimes or torts according to libertarian theory. Every statute or administrative rule is therefore illegitimate and itself invasive and a criminal interference with the property rights of non-criminals. Murray N. Rothbard, Ph.D., Economic Controversies. 2011, Mises Institute, p. 406. The annual cost of federal regulations in the United States increased to more than $1.75 trillion in 2008. Had every U.S. household paid an equal share of the federal regulatory burden, each would have owed $15,586 in 2008. By comparison, the federal regulatory burden exceeds by 50% private spending on health care, which equaled $10,500 per household in 2008. While all citizens and businesses pay some portion of these costs, the distribution of the burden of regulations is quite uneven. The portion of regulatory costs that falls initially on businesses was $8,086 per employee in 2008. Small businesses, defined as firms employing fewer than 20 employees, bear the largest burden of federal regulations. As of 2008, small businesses face an annual regulatory cost of $10,585 per employee, which is 36% higher than the regulatory cost facing large firms, defined as firms with 500 or more employees. Nicole V. Crane and W. Mark Crane. The Impact of Regulatory Costs on Small Firms. 2010, Lafayette College, P. IV. At a cost that ranges from $10,000 to $50,000, tiny homes like the Matchbox could help to ease the shortage of affordable housing in the capital city. Heating and cooling costs are negligible. Rainwater catchment systems help to make the homes self-sustaining. They're an attractive option to the very sort of residents who the city attracts in abundance. Single, young professionals without a lot of stuff, who aren't ready to take on a large mortgage. But tiny houses come with one enormous catch. They're illegal, 
in violation of several codes in Washington, D.C.'s zoning ordinance. Among the many requirements in the 34 chapters and 600 pages of code are mandates defining minimum lot size, room sizes, alleyway widths, and accessory dwelling units that prevent tiny houses from being anything more than a part-time residence. Todd Cranine, J. Austin's Beautiful, Illegal Tiny House. Reason, August. 2014. Elvis Summers crowdfunded $100,000 and built dozens of $1,200 tiny houses for the homeless. Then the city seized them. Each night, tens of thousands of people sleep in tent cities crowding the palm-lined boulevards of Los Angeles, far more than any other city in the nation. The homeless population in the entertainment capital of the world has hit new record highs in each of the past few years. But a 39-year-old struggling musician from South L.A. thought he had a creative fix. Elvis Summers, who went through stretches of homelessness himself in his 20s, raised over $100,000 through crowdfunding campaigns last spring. With the help of professional contractors and others in the community who sign up to volunteer through his nonprofit, Starting Human, he has built dozens of solar-powered, tiny houses to shelter the homeless since. Summers says that the houses are meant to be a temporary solution that, unlike a tent, provides the secure foundation residents need to improve their lives. The tiny houses provide immediate shelter, he explains. People can lock their stuff up and know that when they come back from the drug treatment program or court or finding a job all day, their stuff is where they left it. Each house features a solar power system, a steel-reinforced door, a camping toilet, a smoke detector, and even window alarms. The tiny structures cost Summers roughly $1,200 apiece to build. L.A. City officials, however, had a different plan to address the crisis. A decade after the city's first 10-year plan to end homelessness withered in 2006, Mayor Eric Garcetti announced in February a $1.87 billion proposal to get all L.A. residents off the streets, once and for all. He and the city council aimed to build 10,000 units of permanent housing with supportive services over the next decade. In the interim, they are shifting funds away from temporary and emergency shelters. Councilmember Curran Price, who represents the district where Summers' tiny houses were located, does not believe they are beneficial either to the community or to the homeless people housed in them. I don't really want to call them houses. They're really just boxes, says Price. They're not safe, and they impose real hazards for neighbors in the community. Most of Summers's tiny houses are on private land that has been donated to the project. A handful had replaced the tents that have proliferated on freeway overpasses in the city. Summers put them there until he could secure a private lot to create a tiny house village similar to those that already exist in Portland, Seattle, Austin, and elsewhere. My whole issue and cause is that something needs to be done right now, Summers emphasizes. But the houses, nestled among dour tent shantytowns, became brightly colored targets early this year for frustrated residents who want the homeless out of their backyards. 
Councilmember Price was bombarded by complaints from angry constituents. In February, the City Council responded by amending a sweeps ordinance to allow the tiny houses to be seized without prior notice. On the morning of the 9th, just as the Mayor and Council gathered at City Hall to announce their new plan to end homelessness, police and garbage trucks descended on the tiny homes, towing three of them to a Bureau of Sanitation lot for disposal. Summers managed to move eight of the threatened houses into storage before they were confiscated, but their residents were left back on the sidewalk. Justin Monticello. This L.A. Musician built $1,200 tiny houses for the homeless, Reason, Deck. 2016. What makes wages rise? The buyers do not pay for the toil and trouble the worker took nor for the length of time he spent in working. They pay for the products. The better the tools are which the worker uses in his job, the more he can perform in an hour, the higher is, consequently, his remuneration. What makes wages rise and renders the material conditions of the wage earners more satisfactory is improvement in the technological equipment. American wages are higher than wages in other countries because the capital invested per head of the worker is greater and the plants are thereby in the position to use the most efficient tools and machines. What is called the American way of life is the result of the fact that the United States has put fewer obstacles in the way of saving and capital accumulation than other nations. The economic backwardness of such countries as India consists precisely in the fact that their policies hinder both the accumulation of domestic capital and the investment of foreign capital. As the capital required is lacking, the Indian enterprises are prevented from employing sufficient quantities of modern equipment, are therefore producing much less per manhole and can only afford to pay wage rates which, compared with American wage rates, appear as shockingly low. There is only one way that leads to an improvement of the standard of living for the wage-earning masses, viz. the increase in the amount of capital invested. All other methods, however popular they may be, are not only futile, but are actually detrimental to the well-being of those they allegedly want to benefit. Ludwig von Mises, Ph.D., Wages, Unemployment, and Inflation. Christian Economics, March 1958. The Implications of Self-Ownership. Some people might say, well, the problem is, if we can sell kidneys, then really desperately poor people would sell their kidneys, and richer people wouldn't, and you'd exploit them. Part of my response is to say, if you have a person who's in such dire straits that their best option is to sell a kidney, and you take that away from them, you're a horrible human being who doesn't care about social justice. Your moral sense is completely warped, I hope you're not voting. It's a forceful thing to say, but it's true. This is a horrible thing for that human being to have to do, but also it's their best option, which means if you take that away, they're gonna do something even worse than that, so by hypothesis, you don't want to take that away. Jason Brennan, PhD, professor and author of Markets Without Limits, from an episode of Keith Knight's Don't Tread on Anyone podcast. Top 3 Ways, Sweatshops, Help the Poor Escape Poverty. The New York Times recently reported on the case of Nokufula Massingo, 
an employee at a clothing factory in Newcastle, South Africa. Massingo works long hours in tough conditions all for only $36 per week. If that sounds low, it is, even by South African standards where the legal minimum wage is $57 per week. Many people would describe Massingo's factory as a sweatshop, and many would say that the owners of the sweatshop are treating Massingo and their other employees unfairly. Now in this video I don't want to try to fully settle the question of whether sweatshops treat their workers unfairly or not. Let's grant for the sake of argument that they do. The point I want to make here is that even if sweatshop workers are treated unfairly, there are three points to be made in defense of sweatshops. First, it's important to remember that the exchange between the worker and her employer is mutually beneficial, even when it's unfair. Sweatshops make their employees better off even if they don't make them as much better off as critics think they should. Consider sweatshop wages. As you might recall, Massingo earned $36 a week at her sweatshop job. Compare this with her friend, who lost her job at a sweatshop after it was closed for violating minimum wage laws and had to find work as a nanny. That friend wound up earning just $14 a month less than 12% of what Massingo earned. And this wage gap is typical of sweatshop jobs relative to other jobs in the domestic economy. Studies have shown sweatshop jobs often pay three to seven times the wages paid elsewhere in the economy. So even if we think the conditions of sweatshop labor are unfair, relative to their other alternatives, sweatshop labor is a very attractive option for workers in the developing world. And this is why those workers are often so eager to accept so-called sweatshop jobs. Now no one on either side of the debate defends forced labor, but so long as sweatshop labor is voluntary, even in a weak sense of being free from physical coercion, workers would only take a job in a sweatshop when that job is better for them than any of their other alternatives. This is true even if we grant that sweatshop workers' freedom is often limited in a variety of unjust ways by the government or by the so-called coercion of poverty. Coercion constrains options, but as long as workers are free to choose from within their constrained set of options, we can expect them to select those jobs that offer the best prospects of success. And when given the choice between working in a sweatshop or working on a farm or working elsewhere in the urban economy, workers consistently choose the sweatshop job. The second point to be made in defense of sweatshops is this. Even if you think sweatshop labor is unfair, it is a bad idea to prohibit it. Think of it this way. People only take sweatshop jobs because they're desperately poor and low on options. But, taking away sweatshops does nothing to eliminate that poverty or to enhance their options. In fact, it only reduces them further, taking away what workers themselves regard as the best option they have. Now, of course, most anti-sweatshop activists aren't trying to shut down factories, but sometimes well-intentioned actions have unintended consequences. The layoffs faced by Massingo's friend are a stark demonstration of this. That friend was fired because the owners of her factory decided it would be better to stop doing business altogether than to pay the legal minimum wage. And while you can make it illegal for factories to pay low wages, 
you cannot make it illegal for them to pay no wages by shutting down altogether. The third and final point is this. It's better to do something to help the problem of global poverty than it is to do nothing. And sweatshops are doing something to help. They're giving people jobs that pay better than their other alternatives, and they're contributing to a process of economic development that has the potential to affect dramatic increases in living standards. Most of us, on the other hand, do nothing to improve the lives of these workers, and that includes American companies that don't outsource their production at all, but instead give their jobs to U.S. workers, who by global standards are already some of the world's wealthiest people. So take the perspective of one of the world's poor for a moment and ask yourself which looks better to you, the American company that outsources to a sweatshop or the American company that, because of its high-minded moral principles, doesn't. Maybe the sweatshop is run by people who are greedy and shallow in their motivations, and maybe the other company is run by people with the purest of intentions. But good intentions don't get you a job and they don't feed your family. So which looks better now? Mats Wilinski, Ph.D. Top 3 Ways Sweatshops Help the Poor Escape Poverty Learn Liberty, June 2012 Is price gouging immoral? Should it be illegal? A hurricane hits your town and the power is out. Your child is diabetic, and you need power to keep her insulin refrigerated. You're desperate, but perhaps you're in luck. I have an electrical generator that I'm willing to sell you, and you have the $800 that generators like mine typically cost. The only problem is I don't want to sell it to you for $800, I want $1,300. Now, as it turns out, my offer would be illegal in the majority of U.S. states, about 34 of which have statutes that prohibit price gouging. That practice is usually defined as raising prices on certain kinds of goods to an unfair or excessively high level during an emergency. So there's really no question about what the law would do to me if I made an offer like this to you. But even if the law is clear, the moral status of price gouging is not. Is price gouging always immoral? And whether it is or not, should it be illegal? Let's look at the question of morality first. Is asking $1,300 for the generator morally wrong? Of course, you'd rather buy it from me for $800, but there are three reasons why my charging a higher price isn't obviously wrong. First, remember, you don't have to buy it from me for $1,300. If that's more than you think the generator is worth, you're free to walk on by. If you do decide to pay, it's because you believe you're getting more value out of the generator than you do from the $1,300 you gave up for it. In other words, you're coming away from the deal with more than you gave up. The second, ask yourself what would happen if I did charge only $800 for the generator. Remember, you aren't the only person who needs electric power in this situation. If the price was lower, would the generator still have been there when you tried to buy it, or would someone else have snatched it up before you ever had a chance? This leads directly to the third point, which is that high prices do more than just line sellers' pockets. They also affect how buyers and sellers behave. For buyers, high prices reduce demand and encourage conservation. 
they lead buyers to ask themselves whether they really need that generator or hotel room or whether they can do without. And by doing so, they allow at least some of those resources to be conserved for other people who might need them more and therefore are willing to pay more. And for sellers, high prices encourage people to bring more goods to where they're needed. If generators can be bought in an area not affected by the hurricane for $800 and resold later for $1,300, that creates a profit incentive for people to bring generators from where they're less needed to where they're more needed to get them to where they'll do more good for people who need them most. All of this leads to a surprising conclusion. Even someone who can't afford to pay $1,300 for a generator benefits from a system in which sellers are allowed to charge that price. That's because the profit motive the debt system creates encourages competition, which increases supply and ultimately drives down prices to a more affordable level for everyone. Now, it's true that when price gouging is legal, some people won't be able to afford the higher prices that result. But ask yourself, what alternative institutions would do better? When price gouging is prohibited, goods usually go to whoever shows up first. If you care about distributive justice, is that really a better system? I think there are good reasons to doubt that price gouging is immoral. But suppose you're not convinced. Suppose you think price gouging is exploitative and wrong. Should it be illegal? The answer, even if we assume that price gouging is immoral is almost certainly that it should not be illegal. If price gouging is wrong, it's because it hurts people in vulnerable situations. But then, the last thing you want to do is hurt those vulnerable people even more. Remember, the only reason price gouging occurs is because a disaster causes demand for certain goods to go up or supply to go down with the result that there isn't enough stuff to go around. Anti-gouging laws don't do anything to address this underlying shortage. In fact, they make it worse by destroying incentives for conservation and increased supply. So even if you think that price gouging is morally wrong and that merchants should refuse to engage in it, making it illegal doesn't make sense. It hurts the very people who need our help most. Mats Walinski, Ph.D. Is price gouging immoral? Should it be illegal? Quote. Learn Liberty, April 2012. Question. If business is not regulated, wouldn't the environment be destroyed? Answer. Our greatest polluter is the government, i.e., U.S. Military, not corporate America. Putting government in charge of protecting the environment is like asking the fox to guard the henhouse. The most polluted countries in the world are those where government had total control of the environment, such as Eastern Europe before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Government is just as dangerous to our environment as it is to the wealth of our nation. It is the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. If your neighbor dumps garbage on your lawn, he or she should clean it up and compensate you for any damages. Similarly, if a business or government agency causes harm, they should make it right again. Today, restitution rarely happens. Businesses pay fines to the government, not to the victim. Government polluters simply claim sovereign immunity and walk away. Regulation isn't working. We need to replace it with restitution.
Mary J. Ruwit, Ph.D., Short Answers to the Tough Questions. 2012, Sunstar Press, p. 48. What is zoning? It is a government program that consists of mandatory rules, regulations, and laws that prevent or inhibit low-income housing from being built within a community. It obviously doesn't occur to Sanders that builders cannot build low-cost housing for the poor in Seattle when zoning laws prohibit them from doing so. The situation is aggravated by the fact that the poor are locked out of the labor market by the government's mandatory minimum wage. Suppose, for example, that a homeless man is willing to work for $5 an hour and that an employer is willing to hire him at that price. They can't make the deal because the law makes it illegal for them to enter into the consensual transaction. The minimum wage law is the reason why there has been a chronic, permanent unemployment rate of 30 to 40 percent among black teenagers for years. I grew up in Laredo, Texas, which the Census Bureau in the 1950s labeled the poorest city in the United States. Laredo did not have zoning. We had a family friend who was a builder. His specialty? Building low-income housing for the poor. He once explained to me that he would travel into Mexico. Laredo is situated on the border. And purchase low-cost building supplies, which enabled him to build low-priced housing that served poor people. His places were always super clean, super nice, super maintained, and super sold out. Was my friend doing this out of a sense of altruism and love for the poor? On the contrary, he was doing it to make money. He was the classic example of what people on the left call a no-good, capitalist, profit-seeking, bourgeois swine. And my friend was a wealthy man because poor people loved his housing. Jacob Hornberger, The Cure for Homelessness. 2018, The Future of Freedom Foundation. There's no reason to trust activist government because the people in charge can be expected, time and again, to back those with power and influence over those without. It's important to avoid comparing idealized state practice with imaginary worst-case practice in the government's absence. Both charity and mutual aid are more viable than government-run anti-poverty programs, more able to help poor people precisely because those programs have high administrative costs. Thanks to Tom Woods for this point. Programs supported freely by people in the government's absence would not feature such high costs. Because donors could choose among multiple programs, there would be persistent pressure for administrative costs to be reduced. Governments raise the cost of being poor. Building codes and zoning regulations raise the cost of housing and so make it harder for people to find inexpensive homes. Some people are forced to live without permanent housing at all, while others must spend much larger fractions of their incomes on housing than they otherwise would. As for food, that's also more expensive thanks to agricultural tariffs and import quotas. In the absence of government policies that make meeting their basic needs unnecessarily expensive, poor people would have more disposable income and would be more economically secure. Gary Chartier, Ph.D. Government is no friend of the poor. 2012, Foundation for Economic Education. During the 20 years before the war on poverty was funded, 
the portion of the nation living in poverty had dropped to 14.7% from 32.1%. Since 1966, the first year with a significant increase in anti-poverty spending, the poverty rate reported by the Census Bureau has been virtually unchanged. Phil Graham and John F. Early, Government Can't Rescue the Poor. The Wall Street Journal, October. 2018. W. Hi don't all workers make the minimum wage? Dot dot dot. The obvious answer is that competition would prevent this absurd outcome. Robert P. Murphy, Ph.D., The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. 2007, Renieri Publishing, p. 24. Minimum wage legislation decreases the likelihood that people with few skills and little experience will be able to get their foot in the door and enter the labor market to gain on the job experience. Notice how the state has no problem with students at universities working thousands of hours a year for zero dollars, in the form of classwork, homework, and studying. Many see this when it comes to healthcare, food, housing, books, the higher the cost of those items, the more difficult it is for those with lower incomes to access those goods and services. Higher wages result in fewer employers, fewer choices for employees, Fewer businesses, less consumer choice, and higher prices than would otherwise exist. It is often the people who can offer me no career, no products, and no services, who tell me that I am being exploited by those voluntarily offering me those things. If an employer offering me $1 an hour is bad, your offering me $0 is worse. Not to mention, I get no on the job experience. Anarcho-communists do not recognize people's freedom to contract voluntarily. Therefore, they are seeking to rule over others, and cannot logically be considered anarchists in principle, even though the first anarchists were communists. If the first mathematicians declared that 2 plus 2 equals 32, that would not make 2 plus 2 equals 32. Patrick McFarlane, J.D.